it's identifying those people within your industry that for whatever your reason, most of the time it's pretty easy to understand why, but why you would want them to, even if they don't know it, mentor you, that's okay if that's in your ambition. And then really you got to stay close to the hoop, right? And and you really actually have to work hard to, to getting that mentorship because you can't just show up, say, hey, will you mentor me? No, okay, I'm going to go. Yeah, that like never just, works. Yeah, the mentorship almost has to be informal to where they don't even know, but they just... Exactly. And part of, in my opinion, and tell me if you agree, part of getting someone to mentor you, whether they know it or not, is when they give you advice or give you mentorship that you actually go execute on it. You actually go apply it. The second you start giving someone younger is like, you know, what would you do here? And you tell them, and then, you know, whether it's five days or five weeks later, you see that they didn't really apply it. Then you're like, what am I doing here? I was going to say application. That's, application. that's like the key to it. Welcome to another episode of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today, we are joined by Jared Epstein, president at Aurora Capital Associates, which he joined in 2007. Jared's been instrumental in establishing Aurora as one of the largest owners and most active developers in New York City's downtown Manhattan market, completing over $2.5 billion in transactions during his tenure. That is a very big number and, and in a very competitive uh, marketplace. His vision and transformative leadership have played a pivotal role in reshaping New York's iconic neighborhoods, and Aurora has become the largest landlord in the meatpacking district besides Google. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Can't thank you enough for being here. Oh, my honor to be here with you. How was the, I mean, what did it, it's, it's got to be only maybe a mile from where you came from, but getting over here, do you walk, do you cab, what do you do? I actually, um, I was downtown today, so, so that's I, a, took, that's uh, tougher, I tried yeah. to take a Uber didn't come, then into a cab, cab got stuck, had to walk. So New York, a city that never sleeps, always something going on. I always ask this question. I don't know if it's a good question to ask you, but it could, what does a typical day or week look like for you? Or is there a typical day? I would say there's definitely a typical day for me. I'm not an early riser. I'm a little bit of a late riser. That's my, a New York thing, My though. entire yeah, life, you know, a, I'm up a, by like seven o'clock with my boys they're eating breakfast, either myself and or my wife are taking the boys to school. I haven't eaten breakfast yet. I come back, I relax, I hang out with my dog a little bit, I watch CNBC, then I'll have breakfast, I'll shower. I'm not in the office, just to be honest, until yeah, about no, no. 10, 10.30 a.m. Yeah, there's no there's no playbook for how to be successful. Everybody's right. got their own style. Then I'm sitting in my office, checking all my emails. I should have mentioned also when I'm waking sure. up, the first thing I do, I'm on my phone. You know, checking emails, texts, what do I have today, my calendar. I always ask myself, is that a good or a bad habit to have? It's good in the sense of like getting back to people, but it's bad like you wake up and you're like, boom, right into it. You're boom into it, and then it actually stalls your morning. So you're that's part of the reason I'm not at the office so early. It's because I'm up all night doing the same thing, texts, emails, reading the news, and then the same thing the following morning. So, so you get in the office at 10.30, Again, New York, it, it's still, you know, I want to say recovering from COVID, definitely from a from a remote office standpoint, it's it's been culturally a challenge to get some of the people back, but you're an in-the-office guy. I'm in the office five days a week. Um, when my children and my boys were a little bit younger, I tried to get out of the city Thursday night or Friday morning. That's not the case anymore. They have to be in school five days a week, so it a little changed my patterns. Um, the first thing I do when I get to the office is, again, check my email, see who I have to call back check in with my team and then uh, get the day going. 
And how, how late are you usually staying at the office? And My wife doesn't like how long I stay, but usually I'm there till 6.30, 7 o'clock. And there are plenty of nights that I'm there till 9 or 10 p.m. And back in the day, I'd be there till 11. Yeah, and then kids yeah. change that, of course. Yeah, 100%. Where's home base for you? Home base is Chelsea. Okay. I'm down on 18th Street between 6th and 7th. So do you walk, you walk to work? Or? I walk to work, and I walk back every single day. And that's a... That's a not in New York, but that is a unique experience. You like that? I love that. That's one of the my favorite things about New York City is the ability to get some exercise in the morning and the late evening without having to be in a gym. What are some of the exciting or big projects you're working on today? We're developing the southeast corner of Jane Street and West right on the water, right on the Hudson River. 100,000 square feet, ground-up development designed by Leroy Street. Mark Turkel is the renowned architect there. Leroy Street is our design architect. BKSK is doing like all the filings and the more of the gritty work. We're projecting sellouts approaching $500 million. And when you say sellouts, so it's this multifamily? No, it's a it's a residential condominium. Got it. I don't know if you'd call that multifamily. Yeah, Most people it's a for to, sale multifamily. Yeah. yeah. So it's a condo, not a co-op. Condominium. Ground up construction, beautiful building, probably around 85,000 feet sellable, no retail, amazing lobby, port de for your wow. car, garage. How many total units? 14 units. Oh, so these are big units. These are big. This is ultra luxury. Though. Ultra luxury. The what northern are, unit is about 4,500 feet. The southern unit is 3,200 feet. They both have 37 and a half feet of waterfront frontage. Yeah. High ceilings. The north unit has a conservatory, which is somewhat new to New York City. I don't know if anyone's ever done it before. Basically, it's like a nano wall that you can open up so you're you feel like you're outside. You feel the weather and the conditions. There's um the floor is basically designed to allow for the weather and rain and anything like oh. that. So it's an indoor out outdoor room. What what is the sales range on these units or what's we, the high and the low right we can't i can't technically talk about yeah. that we haven't um we're in our cps one we haven't finished with the attorney general it's going to be a big number though. but it's a big number i would say somewhere I, i'll i'll tell you this basically in the neighborhood for something that's new which there is nothing new in this magnitude other buildings that are probably eight to ten years old are averaging three to thirty five hundred a foot will I think we'll eclipse that dramatically. Yeah, that's wild. How many stories? It is 10 stories. And you're right effectively on the water. We're right on the water. That's incredible. What uh, You're going to have to educate me. You know, the development of for sale housing or multifamily or anything in New York has gotten much more difficult recently, correct? Yeah, because of the tightness in the debt markets and the interest rates, that's for sure. What and about, construction costs. And what about local legislation? Are there... So like affordable components, things like that. If you want to do rental, it's pretty much impossible right now unless you're getting the land for next to nothing because the 421A is gone. Yeah. So, you know, you're not getting this tax treatment. Now, are you from the tri-state area originally? I grew up in Marlboro, New Jersey. Tell me about that. How was, uh, how was childhood for you? I loved it. Um, I was born and raised just till I was five years old in Staten Island, New York. So I still have like this feeling that I'm partly a Staten Islander, sure. which gives you a little grit. And, yeah, I was going to say, he's a little gritty. And strength. I then moved to Marlboro with my family. I played basketball, football, baseball, very into sports. Card, card collector, right? Yeah, we baseball, card, football, basketball, card collector major. I was always 
into sports very much. Um, had a great group of friends. Was very popular. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, maybe because I have a big personality. I was get good personality, and yes. clearly we'll touch we'll touch on what you've done at Aurora, but a, a good sense of what socially people want. Yes, I'm always I've always been able to connect with people on a deep level. I think that's probably my biggest skill set. My mother's always told me that. You know, I lead with my heart. I get very I get very close to people very quickly because I care. I genuinely care about people. And um, that's greatly impacted my life and my career. What did your parents do? My father was is still a CPA and financial advisor. My mother has an interesting story. She was a bookkeeper where my dad was working, which was a foreign exchange mafioso oh, trading wow. firm in the city called Noonan's. So we, you know, I, I got to be around these kind of people when I was young and it was very intriguing and interesting sure. to me. Um, but you didn't want to be a CPA. No, I definitely didn't want to be a CPA. My dad was great with numbers, very quick with the calculator. I'd help him with check, like checkbooks and checks yeah. and, you know, filing them and things like that. But my father himself, I don't think he really wanted to be a CPA either. He's very much a funny man. He could have been a comedian or an actor. Do you think part of his choice was a, a conservative approach to being a provider for a family saying, hey, there's other things I'd love to do, but I'm going to take the career choice where there's a near certainty that I'll be able to provide for my family? Absolutely. He didn't come from a family of wealth. He grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, tough neighborhood. He always wanted to play football, but the kids were much bigger and much uh, more physically imposing than he was so he joined the band he played the uh, saxophone and the clarinet so yes absolutely he went the career path of numbers and finance and being an accountant because not only did he want to provide for his family but he was a smart guy he was really smart he he skipped eighth grade he went to hunter college and was like summa cum laude there um, and that led him into the into the accounting world. Actually, at first he worked for a big law firm called Hartman and Craven with some legendary attorneys, and they made him their in-house accountant for all of them personally. That was actually how it led to Noonan's because Noonan's was one of their clients on the legal side. So your dad's CPA, your mom's a bookkeeper. Both. Oh, my mom totally shifted. My mom was a bookkeeper, ended up working for Manhattan Bagel, which was a really storied franchise back in the day. They went public. My dad had a lot of stock. Then, of course, the um, they they bought a company that was cooking the books, and it that's not good. It, yeah. it basically went bankrupt. But my mom was the franchise coordinator for the whole company, kind of like a retail um, position. Mm -hmm. So, and she did great. She was in the and paper so she, one she, time. Is that where you get your personality from? Would you say? I think it's from no, my father. Yeah, I was going to say your dad. My also, father. Yeah. I think my father. I get more of the personality. He has like big relationships with many people. He, he people gravitate to him and they care about him because he cares as well. My mother probably bigger heart, more um, more. My mom a bigger heart and a harder worker probably. Okay. Yeah, very committed to working hard and being motivated. And uh, we'll get into your your work ethic and your efforts, but in, in terms of growing up and into high school, I'm going to touch on college in a second. Were you a good student? 
Um, no, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it's funny. not. It's like anytime there's hesitation, eh, no. no I was, anytime there's yeah. hesitation, they want to say no, but they're like, my kids might listen to this. And yeah. so how do I answer Maybe this one day I'll, yeah. I'll let them listen to this when they've already succeeded. Yeah. So I would say in high school, I had about a 2.5 GPA. I was incredibly intelligent as a kid. I had like a 132 IQ. My parents tell me all these stories. I came out of the womb and the doctor within three months, I was doing puzzles and he said, this boy is very intelligent. You're gonna have a you difficult just, you life. You just didn't see the value in, in kind of like sitting there and being- I was complacent. Yeah. You know, I knew I was intelligent. I was doing workbooks for math. That was like my thing when I was a young boy. I didn't wanna hang out with kids. I wanted to do these workbooks. And my mind was just so fast with mathematics. Then I got to school and I'm like, these people, you know, they're slower than me. I think I'm smarter than the teachers. And I was lackadaisical for sure. Got to high school and I was focused on many different things than education. I was focused on girls, sports. I became a bookie <laughs> in school. So, so yeah. talk to me about becoming a bookie. What, what, how, did, how, did, how does that happen? So I would be placing bets and I never won. And my father told me pretty simply, you're better off taking it than making it. Hmm. Meaning taking the bet, not making the bet. I teamed up with an older guy than me, like one one grade above, imposing, tough dude. I was gonna say you had to have an enforcer. Yes, he was the enforcer and I was the relationship guy. Everyone in my high school I had a relationship with got the word out that we were gonna be taking bets and we did really well. Unfortunately, my desire to gamble myself got me in trouble because I was placing bets at the end of the day as a fake person and I got crushed. So I ended up having to pay off oh, geez, my, yeah. my own losses to my bookie partner. So, so at the time, maybe, maybe today you could call him not the best uh, picker. Yeah. No, I'm definitely terrible at picking sports teams, uh, probably because I let my emotions take control. Yeah. Also not great at picking stocks. I started trading stocks when I was 13 years old. I was doing great in Apple and iOmega and Microsoft. And then I went really long in a company called Advanced Viral Research. I got a tip at high school from a friend. I thought he was his friend. He says to me, my father was on a plane coming back from like Indonesia and he was sitting next to this doctor and the doctor opened his briefcase and inside were these vials. And in and the vials he told um, my, my friend's father, these vials are curing cancer in Indonesia. And the stock that in the company that he worked for was called Advanced Viral Research. The stock is ADVR, it was a penny stock. I started accumulating shares of like 75 cents all the way up to a buck. My dad went into, oh, I probably geez. had 20 to 30,000 shares. My dad probably had, I don't know, 100, 150,000 shares. Then, very interesting, and I've never looked into this to this day and it i don't know like how this happened but there was a station in new jersey called new jersey 12 news my dad calls me one night i'm at a party down the block and my dad says jared you got to get home right now it's regarding advr you got to get home come fast i run home and he plays for me a segment that he filmed of new jersey 12 they show these patients from Indonesia or whatever mm -hmm. it was back in the, um, you know, the Pacific about how it's curing people of cancer. And they actually showed the people before and after. My dad and I were like, wow. Here we go. Here we go. We're going to make a fortune. 
that was like a Saturday. Monday morning, the market opens. The stock doesn't move. Like it maybe moved like five, 10 cents. The whole week, it ends up like down a couple of cents. We're like, what's going on? My dad takes the videotape, produces like 20 more of them, copies. He's like, Jared, we got to get this out. People don't know what's going on. You know, this is going to cure. Actually, I think it was AIDS, not cancer. And this was kind of before the internet where things could go viral. You know? Yeah. So we were trying to get it viral through the people that we knew with these videotapes. My grandmother, God rest her soul, was a trader her whole life. She taught me calls, puts, straddles. Really incredible. I'd spend nights on the phone with her. She lived in Florida. I was in New Jersey. And she trained me on the market. She had a, like, really had a great relationship with me and believed in me mm. in a huge way. She wanted me to be in the market. So she calls us one afternoon, leaves a message. We weren't in the house. Jared and Nolan, you got to get Barron's. You're not going to believe it. Go get Barron's. So we go get Barron's on the cover. ADVR, biggest scam in the last decade. Oh, ah, so what are we going to do? We're hoping for like, an opening that's not too bad, that it's not like zero cents basically, and then maybe a dead cat bounce, which means that it you know it, mm. it falls dramatically and then there's a surge of buying just to lift the stock a little bit. We ended up getting out at 17 cents. Our average basis in the stock was probably like a one and a quarter to 150. Ooh, okay. So I got slammed. Yeah, I basically slammed. lost all of all right, so not my a, money in the market. Not a gambler, not a stock picker. Definitely a gambler, was a stock picker, but was never on yeah, the right side. Yeah, that's what side. I'm saying. But but you seem to have done okay as an entrepreneur. So it sounds like even at a young age, especially with becoming a bookie or a stock picker, you, you had an entrepreneurial bent, a lean to you. Is that is that safe to say? That's for sure. And then the next part of my life was I went to college and I – had these friends that were promoting nightclubs. I had never been to a nightclub so, in my real life. Real quick, for the audience, yeah. where'd you go to college? I went to the University of Maryland. Was that straight out of high school? Straight out of high school, and I became a bookie again, really quickly. Um, I had guys running for me. I had this great big guy named Ace Nurse, who's a dear friend of mine till this day. He played football at Maryland. That's he was a, supposed to be my enforcer, but he was like he was a tough kid, but he was too soft. He liked having relationships with everyone, so he didn't Prob collect. Probably an O lineman. Yeah, O linemen are big. They're scary, but they're like they're like really big, nice guys. He was you know? a D lineman actually, okay. and All he right. was tough. He was from Lawrence, or actually Inwood, which is a tough town. But he was too nice. He was tough, but too nice. So you're a bookie. You're at Maryland, but you were touching on real quick something about sounds like you got into nightclubs, yeah? Yeah, so yeah. I had these two friends that were promoting nightclubs in New York City. The first time I went with them, they walk right into the club, a huge club called Carbon Nightclub. I would think it was on 54th Street between 10th and 11th, owned by a guy named David Marvisi, a legend in nightlife. So is this, sorry, is this up here or down? Here in New York okay, City. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, so they walk in for free. I'm waiting in line forever. There's probably 500 to 1,000 people in line. They have these drink tickets, so they get in for free right away. I'm waiting online. They have drink tickets. I pay to get in. I pay for my drinks. I'm like, what the hell? What do you? What do you guys do? Yeah. So they explained to me the whole business of nightclub promotions. So was I this, was this when you were in college? Yeah, this okay. was probably in 1998. I graduated high school in '97, and it sparked my interest. I said, I never want to wait on the line you again. Had a fake ID. I had a fake ID, yeah. of course. I didn't want to wait in line. I wanted free drinks. I wanted people to know who I am. 
and a guy that can get in quickly and maybe could help other people get in sure. quickly or pay less. Yes. Back in the day, it was all... It'd be a guy with status. Yeah, that's it, status. And back in the day, um, there, were, there was cover charge at every nightclub. It wasn't about drinks and bottle service. That's how you ended up getting paid down the road. Mm-hmm. But this was all about the door. It was called the door and getting yeah. a piece off I'm the door. I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah, so I had a list. It was called the A-list. And I would get $5 per person that walked in, and they would get $5 off. So that's this, how I started. Is this something that you did throughout your college time in college? Yeah, it got much bigger. So not only did I start promoting clubs in Washington, D.C., I had buses taking kids from Maryland to D.C., to these clubs. I did a party every Friday night. Oh, wow. It became very big. Not only did I have kids working for me at the University of Maryland, but also at American University and GW. We'd have like 500 to 1,000 yeah, so you had kids a whole a operation going. I had an operation. And then I was also run, I also ran Homecoming and Greek Week. So I got in with all the fraternities. I never pledged the fraternity. I had no interest, but I lived with guys that yeah. were either in SAM or SAE. So they would pull their people. And then we got close with the sororities and it just became and a so very big thing. Very entrepreneurial, big operation. Was there money in this or were you getting, in essence, paid by, paid through experience? No, I would say there was definitely some money. It, I Every Friday night, I was probably taking home 500 to to $1,000 in cash. In college, that was a pretty was big thing. Say, yeah, it takes care of what you need. By the time I was 21 years old, I bought myself a Rolex. It was like a gift to myself, a Submariner that I ended up giving to my father like 10 years ago or sure. so. But that was a big moment for me that I was able to do something like that for myself. What did you major in in college? I majored in economics, so all about supply and demand. Got it. And, and that definitely applies to nightlife and then ultimately real estate. Definitely. Sure. Let me touch yeah. back on one yeah. thing regarding the promoting. So then I met these guys from Great Neck, Manhattan, all over Long Island, and they needed a guy that went to like a different university and grew up in a different town. So I was like the only guy from the University of Maryland and from Auburn, New Jersey, that was helping them promote these nightclubs in the summer. Every kid in the summer would come back to the city. That was like their thing after, you know, after spending the semesters in college. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but we did this thing called Thanksgiving Eve. It's like the night before Thanksgiving. Huge for college kids. Everyone would Everyone's be in home, the city. Yeah. Everyone would come to the city that night and party. So that was yeah. big too. And so um, so you met those guys. You're majoring in economics. You graduate. Do you do you stay in that industry and in kind of the pr- promotion industry? Or? I had no interest in doing that. I had interned on the first. I interned at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Okay. I was uh, cold calling, not as much as your employees are uh, throughout your company here at Matthews, which I'm astonished by how successful you and this firm oh, yeah. are. Really, that, yeah. really amazing to me. And I didn't know anything about this until I walked into the office. Yeah, this we're, morning we're, here. New, we're new in New York, but we're, you know, we're, we're going to work hard at making a big name here. So I think you're going to be dramatically successful and um, any young broker or even mid-level broker, I would encourage them to meet with you as soon as possible. I appreciate it. That's a public service announcement by Jared Epstein. It sure is. Yeah. No, all right, so Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter. Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, taking the train. Coldie, and ripping coldies, baby. Ripping cold calls, trying to get guys on the phone that had some money and then passing it off to you know the broker that I was working for named Craig Weinstein. I'll never forget him. 
He was great. He had an Italian partner that was cursing all day, every day. Like movie characters. Yes, buying and selling options. It was really incredible. I was a big fan growing up of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, one of my favorite um, movies ever. Or or Wall Street. Yeah, Wall Street was cool. I loved Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko. But really, the one that stuck to me that I like watch till this day, at least a few times a year, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. From Mitch and Murray downtown. <laughs> wow, I'm surprised that oh, you I knew know that. The whole, like, come on, I'm in brokerage. Like, that is the only movie ever made about our industry. Is, Unbelievable uh, I mean, movie. Th- there's a lot. Like, what does it take to sell real estate? You yeah, know, put uh, that coffee down. Coffee's for closers. That's correct. You, you ain't close shit. Yeah, yeah, look at that watch. Yeah. My, my, my watch, watch is worth more, more than, than your car. car. That's right. <laughs> A-I-D-A. Hey, hey, what's your name? Yeah. Fuck you. Fuck that, you that's, your, my, that's my uh, name. Right. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. No, it's, it's a great. What'd great you drive movie. to get here? A Hyundai? Yeah. I drove an $80,000 BMW. Oh, yes. BMW. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Sales. It, it was, it's a tough rack. I did that. It's a tough racket. Yep. Oh, and I love that movie. First prize, a Cadillac Eldorado. Second, Second prize, prize steak. a set so of steak knives. Third real, prize, you are fired. I want you to know you're going to love this. At Matthews, we have these, we have contests. We have contests. We're in an office and we do these big national contests. And anytime you finish second place at Matthews, you get steak knives. This is <laughs> a true it. thing. And yeah. what's first prize? Well, right now we're running a fantasy brokerage. First prize, the winning team is 12 agents. They go on a uh, all-expense trip paid to Belgium to go to EDM Festival Tomorrowland. Wow. Yeah, flights, hotel, the whole thing. I mean, it's wild. That's because you're a young brokerage firm well, you going know, to yeah. an EDM. <laughs> yeah, well, no, well what, I, what we do, yeah. it's a very democratic company. We say, sure. well, what do you guys want to do? And they vote on it, and this is what they want to vote on. This Got is what, it. This is what they do. Got so, it. so that became first yeah, prize this year. A, a couple years ago, they went to Tulum for New Year's. And so, again, we, we go to the team and say, what do you want to do? And um, Sure. And, uh, you know, one year we said, okay, we think this, this is the prize. It was a very motivating prize. But at the end, after the team won, they said, Hey, we've actually talked about it and modified their choice again, as long as the budget's in line, we don't care. Whatever you guys want to do, but second place set of steak knives and actually third place. Cause there's like, there's a lot of teams. So third place, you get a pair. This is an inside joke of a pair of like, uh, Nike air monarchs, like the shoes old people wear. Sure. So it's, it's how about this? These are the Glen Gary leads. These are the, I, I wish your, I had Glenn And to Gary you, leads. they're gold, yeah, but you me. don't get them because giving them to you would just be throwing them away. Throwing them away. It's a great movie. If you are in any sales, let alone real estate sales, you have to watch Glen Gary, Glen Ross. And, and by the way, the cast of that movie is insane. Insane. Al Pacino, Kevin Spacey. I don't remember Sheldon Alec, Levine. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, um, right? Of course. Uh, Ed Harris. Ed Harris, yes, uh, correct. Uh, oh, gosh. Who played so, Shelley Levine? I don't, I uh, Jack remember. Lemon. Jack Lemon. Yes, legend. Just a great movie. Incredible. All right, so you watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. You Never said, knew I'd be in sales, though, at all. Just said, love that movie. Said, My dad was a motivator. My dad, by the way, at 13, instead of getting a big gift for my bar mitzvah, he gave me a green pencil holder. Why? I had no idea. Inside of it was a notepad. He said, Jared, and it was written in the notepad. Jared, this is for all your big ideas. Keep them here, write them down, and then explore them and go after them. And then every single day of my childhood from that day on, he'd put a quote on my desk in my room that I'd save in the green pencil holder all motivational quotes. That's very special. Yeah, very incredible. So would you say, if I was sitting here with your dad interviewing, would it, would it safe to say your dad would say, I saw at a young age in Jared that he had big ideas and, and very much might do big things? Yes, we were like best friends and he was motivated and he wanted me to eclipse him. Like 
he would always say like the greatest thrill in his life would be as if his son exceeded him. One of the biggest thrills in my life after he basically covered my rent down in Soho for nine years because I was living a big life. Yeah. You know, I was a promoter. I was probably making like 50 a year in cash, uh, going out, you know, free bottles, girls, lots of fun. Making, making 50, spending 60. Oh, yeah. I was probably spending like 75. Yeah. So I owed my dad at the point like 150K. Within one year at Aurora Capital, I paid him back. And he said to me, Jared, if you didn't pay me back, I wouldn't have felt bad for me. I would have felt bad for you. Got it. So big believer. Clearly could see you had big ideas. Um, and so that led to, now, now I want to get to the, the part of your story, which is obviously relevant to me. How, do you, how, do you, how did you get into the real estate industry? Really quick, I'll just go back. So I'm interning there at Morgan Stanley, mm -hmm. Dean Witter. I end up interning at the New York Mercantile Exchange with guys, heavy hitters. These guys were making literally ten dollars to $50,000 a day. Huge leverage, money behind them, ten to fifty grand a day. I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. I got to get into this. And it's basically like gambling, but smart gambling mm -hmm. based on alpha and beta. Like I, I had to read this book, Options and Volatility, like a legendary book that every guy has to learn. Um, I was on the phone calling in futures against the options that they were doing, like using hand signals. Yeah, just really incredible. Like something that you would only see in trading places. Was I was going to say, like um, Eddie Murray, Mo Mo Mortimer. Eddie Murphy, sorry, yeah. Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Was it Mortimer and Mo Mortimer? Yes, Mortimer and yeah. Mortimer. They made a dollar bet that Eddie Murphy could eclipse Dan Aykroyd, yeah. and he sure did, but then he did the right thing. They got together. Uh, they changed the, oh, yeah. I think it was frozen orange juice. Orange juice. Yes. What the, uh, what, what the, the freeze in uh, yeah, Florida exactly. would have affected. I got, you know, speaking of dads, Incredible I got to give credit to my dad. My dad was the one who told me about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. My dad certainly made me probably watch a movie about somebody trading places for a dollar and making a bet. And same I, with my father. I grew up in these and as much as from a football standpoint, that was, that was potentially an option. I always, I wanted to be in an environment where I wore a suit and tie and I, did things that were fun and exciting, but you actually did it. You're down at this uh, mercantile exchange. Yeah, I had no idea. No, I had no interest whatsoever in ever wearing a suit and tie. That's like not my thing. I'm very chill. I'm into nature. I like being comfortable. So the NYMEX seemed like a great place for me. They wore like a, you know a very cool jacket. They had a cool badge. Yeah. Not a sports jacket. Like literally like a throwover piece. Well, because you're you're throwing elbows. <laughs> exactly. You know? you yeah. Really incredible. So I saw the money. I liked the guys that were down there. They were kind of like the mafioso types and some really brilliant Jewish guys making a fortune of money. The problem was for me that within like a week of being there, I knew that there was a guy on the floor that had a badge who was strictly there to deal drugs, literally. And I was given a Vicodin probably within my first week. We went out for lunch. I had a beer, slammed this Vicodin down. And I, you know, after that day, I'm like, I cannot do this. And that was like, that was the culture. Totally, right? 100%. Possibly how they even were able to physically subject themselves to that lifestyle it is uh, what I, I want to make a joke performance enhancing drugs you know? totally absolutely yeah. and i said to myself if i do this i'm going to end up dying young okay this is not what i want to do so that's a very mature and smart decision that a lot of people in that's that position potentially don't make or didn't make however i got the job offer i'm supposed to start september 15th 
and have my drug test because you had to get drug tested to work at one North End Avenue on the exchange. I was supposed to have the drug test September 11th. I was in Maryland. This is September 11th, 2001. I'm in Maryland visiting my year younger girlfriend who I'd been with for quite a while, really loved her. And I get a call at 8.30 in the morning from her mother telling me to turn on the TV. I'm laying in bed. My girlfriend's at, you know, at class. I turn on the TV. The first thing I see is Diane Sawyer broadcasting and then a plane going right mm-hmm. into the Trade Center. It was the second was plane. The second one, And yeah. it blows up. And I was like, whoa. What is happening? What is happening? This is, it, it, it changed my life and so many other people's lives as well. God rest the souls of all the people that yeah. you know died that day and have since passed due to the you know the um, carcinogens that yeah, were my, down. Yeah, my father in law passed a couple of years ago from a, a very specific blood cancer. He worked at the federal building across the way, and wow. he, he went back to work th- four days after they went down. And, and my mother in law was like, "Hey, I don't want you to go down there." But he was he was high up in Social, Social Security Administration, and he went down there. And uh, there's no there's no history of, of this blood cancer's very unique lymphoma to the dust and the dust from the buildings. And so, you know, he, and again, this is 15 years after, sure. but, uh, right. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is very tragic that day and the loss yeah. of life that day, but it, it's still happening. Yeah, for sure. So I was supposed to be on a train that morning going into the trade center to then, you know, walk over to one North end Avenue. Thank God I wasn't there at that time. And the next thing that happened, one North End Avenue was no longer viable for the New York Mercantile Exchange. They ended up working maybe like an hour a day. I'm not sure where. It definitely wasn't at one North End Avenue because that was Mm -hmm. directly adjacent to the rubble. And I wasn't going to be able to work at this job, um, which I really wasn't excited about except for the fact that I probably could have made a lot of money. So I spent six months, eight months back at home with my parents and my sister. Absolutely not what I wanted to do. Finally, I got back into promoting. Um, I saw an ad on Monster or whatever company it was back then. Young kids don't know about Monster. Yeah. So I saw a job on Monster. It was about um, marketing for, uh, for brands and doing private events for brands, like all brand marketing. Sounded exciting, right up my alley. And it turned out to be just working for an older guy that was a promoter. So I was like, what am I doing? I'm making like 40 grand, I'm working for a promoter, I could be doing this on myself. So three or four of us left, we formed, it was four, we formed the case group. It was Cooper, Alpert, Sneed, and Epstein. And all we did was we went back to the clubs, made our own direct deals, and did well. We were making probably fifty to seventy-five grand cash. But at having that point. having a good time and having know. a great time. The, the compensation in that I was who was I talking about earlier today? Someone at Matthews about like hey, there's different modes of compensation. The most clearly understood is is cash, right? It's like yes, what's cash at the door. Then it became bottle service, but so I was you get a percentage. My, yeah, agreed. I was going to say part of the compensation of that role is what we, we touched on earlier, status. Status. Right? It was it's, big. And for me, what was huge from the time I was in college through the three years that I remained in promoting after college, the, net, the net networking, the relationships. I built relationships yeah. with pretty much anyone my age that was going to be living in Manhattan or lived in Manhattan and, and priceless up and coming future 
heavy hitters in all different types of industries, obviously finance, Absolutely. real estate. Absolutely. So, so you're doing that for a couple of years and then you kind of make a formal transition to real estate. Again, my father, my father calls me one day, he was reading Cranes and in this Cranes article, there was a gentleman named Jeffrey Roseman who Speaking was a Cranes, yes. you were, were you Cranes 40 under 40. Yeah. I, yes, I was. That was a, that was something that I really, really desired for. And it it's, was something a huge, especially in a market yeah. like New York, any Cranes in the, in the markets they cover is a, that's a big accomplishment. New York, it's a, a high bar. It was a huge goal of mine. I didn't think I would ever um, make it to get that honor, to receive that honor, but I did. And it was, um, it was very fulfilling, but I didn't get there on my own. Um, it, it was all about the mentors that I had and being at the right place at the right time and developing relationships further, working hard and getting lucky. I always say about real estate, you could be a great broker, a great investor, a great networker, but at the end of the day, if you don't have luck, like you could get a deal this close, I'm putting my hands as close as they can mm -hmm. get together, but if you don't have luck um, or a blessing from above, the hands don't get together and the deal doesn't happen. So you're so your dad calls you and said, hey, there's this article in Cranes, speaking of Cranes. Uh, there's this article in Cranes, and there's this gentleman named Jeffrey Roseman, who's a broker, the head of Newmark New Spectrum. That's what it was called at the time. And Jeffrey was going to be rolling out Chipotle. Chipotle, one of their first... On the tenant rep side. On the tenant rep side. Chipotle, one of their first college campus stores, was at College Park in Maryland. Got it. So you knew it. I knew all about That's it. My right. father did too. You would smell oh, yeah. the burritos and the That's fajitas so and the chicken from from blocks and blocks away. So me and my father were very into it. Thought it would be hugely successful, which it was. It subsequently got purchased by McDonald's. McDonald's very smart, of right? Them. Exactly. So not only did my father think that that was interesting, but my father had been cutting checks to Newmark New Spectrum for a deal that was brokered by Jeffrey Roseman. Hmm. He had represented my father's client that owned a few buildings on Broadway and brought a company called The Lounge to the building, which was 593 so Broadway. So had, had, he, had he met Jeffrey Roseman? No, he had never oh, met Jeffrey okay. Roseman, but he knew that he was the broker. So he says to me, he calls me and says, Jared, it's time. You got to get a real job, a real profession. Get out of the nightlife industry. You got to go take your, you know, your New York brokers yeah. uh, test. Salespersons get a salesperson's license. I'm going to try to have my client, who was a, you know, owned a few great buildings in Soho, get you a meeting with this guy, Jeffrey Roseman. So I did. I took the took the exam, got through it, passed, and then I was going to have this interview with Jeffrey Roseman at Newmark New Spectrum. I'm thinking. It's an old, tired office, yeah. you know, brown wood, old brown desk, guys. and an old man that I'm meeting. Um, I had no idea what was I, what I was walking into. Really nice office, impeccably dressed gentleman, probably in his, I, to this day, I'm not sure exactly how old he is. I don't think he's ever told me. He was probably at the time in his late 30s, early 40s. And what was he interested in meeting me? Why was he interested in meeting me? simply because I was a nightclub promoter. And why was that? He was a nightclub promoter at Hartford University and another huge titan in the industry of retail at that point. I, I'm going to have to write this down. Yeah. As, uh, you know, We're always like, where can we find good brokerage talent, nightclub promoting? Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's still a thing. It might be. I, you know, I'm not in that life anymore, anymore because of my children. I think uh, they may do it. I'm, I'm just not certain. Anyway, 
Robert Futterman, who was also a titan in the industry, a firm called RKF back in the day. Um, he was a nightclub promoter also at Maryland University. So he was interested in me because if you could do that, he thought you could do sales and then you could be a broker. So you go into brokerage. How was that? Went into brokerage. Two weeks later, he hired me. At, uh, originally, he told me there were no desks available. Two weeks they later, I kept, yeah, I kept pounding him and give me a shot, give me a shot. It was difficult at first. I relied on my relationships in the nightlife world originally. So I was trying to get guys to open restaurants, represent them on nightclubs. I had relationships in the cafe world because at the time I was dating a girl that had a huge, like her father had a mm -hmm. huge brewing company and roasting company for, um, for coffee. So we had many relationships with cafes. I was calling them cold calling, but it was warm, a warm call. Sure. Um, that's something that I always try to do, make warm calls. Any call I ever made, I tried to understand who this person is, what they're into. So when I called them, not only was I adding value by giving them a piece of information, either about their industry, or about real estate, but I also knew something about them. So I tried to connect with them. At the time, them. and maybe it was just kind of coming around social media and probably not in a professional setting, but how would you go about getting information on someone ahead of time? Even Google at that time wasn't what it is today. Like how would you, was it just, it's kind of like your own personal LinkedIn trying to understand your connections to that. So I would talk to other brokers. I would talk to familiar, familial friends, friends in general, my network that I had built up through the promoting world. And I, that's basically how I got to all these guys, yeah. but it was only, it was strictly nightlife restaurants. Roseman, Jeffrey Roseman, who I worked for at the time had me go out and pound the pavement I'd be handing out flyers on um, properties that we were representing, retail space that was available to anyone that was within five blocks, asking them if their lease was coming up. I have this great space. You should come check it out for uh, um, a relocation mm -hmm. of their store. And that's how I you know, started evolving from not only being a restaurant nightlife agent to being more of a landlord rep and even working with tenants that were outside of that nightlife so, world. So you, you have this background as a, as a nightclub promoter kind of on the social, social side of things, and then you're, you're building this base of you know, more traditional real estate, uh, landlord-tenant rep dynamics, and under, you know, building a, a foundation knowledge in that. You did brokerage for four years, and that's when you went to Aurora. What, 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 created, what motivated you to make that change? So I had this affinity towards the meatpacking district. and Why? Because one of the places that I would go to that I did not promote for, it was like above my, uh, above my level. It was on a whole different scale. Celebrity, athletes. Like it was just uh, incredible just to be able to get into the place. So I certainly was not promoting for them, but it was called Lotus on 14th Street, Boone between 9th and 10th Avenue. And then there was a place called Florent, which was like the after hours diner, basically, for everyone in the industry, whether you're a waiter, a, uh, a bar back, um, a bartender, a bottle waitress, a nightclub promoter, everyone would go there around three, four o'clock in the morning and was in the meatpacking district. I thought it was so cool. So I started cold calling landlords there, seeing if I could represent their retail space. I'd also ask the question, are you interested in selling the property? I had a relationship at that time with Richard Chira, also known as Ricky Chira, his brother Jaime Chira, their father, God rest his soul, Stanley Chira. 
their company was called Crown Acquisitions. I pitched them all these different deals in meatpacking. We'd get closed, but nothing ever happened. Um, so we didn't get a deal done, and I was trying with them. And looking back, they should have bought all of them, right? Yeah, I was trying with them for about a year. Then I was begging them to hire me. You know, give me a hundred grand. Let me earn commissions. We're going to get deals done together. So I kind of learned the acquisition side from working with them, underwriting. I learned a little bit about that from agents at Newmark and through the Chira family, which I became very close with. And to this day, I um, I appreciate like their friendship, relationship, and their guidance and mentorship. I had met Bobby Carey a few years before, probably was in the industry for about six months. I met him at Vegas, in Vegas at ICSC. I happened to be, you know, working the booth for Newmark. What year was this? This was 2004. Oh, I was there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. So I'm working the booth. I'm a young guy, very green, wet behind the ears, as they say. And these two guys walk up to the booth and they want to know about this particular property, actually two properties in Soho. I was representing a sublease. Now, this was my father's client's building. So it all like comes back full mm -hmm. circle. But I'm not representing him. I'm representing a tenant that was now looking to sublease his space, the lounge, which is the store that Jeffrey yeah. Roseman had brought to the building on behalf of the landlord, my father's friend. So these two guys come up to the booth and they want to talk to whoever's representing these two buildings. It happened to be me. I meet with these two guys. One, I didn't know. He was like a couple years older than me, a young guy. I was 24 at the time. He was 26. And his uncle, Alex Adjmi, who's like a legend in real estate, especially in the boroughs. And within 30 minutes of the conversation, they're talking about things that are way above my head. Retail condo long-term master lease, like trying to put these two buildings together just to own the retail basically because primarily their focus back then was retail real estate. So what happens next? Within 30 minutes, Bobby Carey says to me, Jared, you should come be my apprentice. I'm like, that's really flattering, but I'm working with Jeffrey Roseman, the head of Newmark Retail. Like, I'm not going to give that up, but you know, I'm really flattered and honored that you would even consider to me to be your apprentice. And he said, the reason that you should want to be my apprentice is my family owns real estate and we're going to be buying a lot more because I'm like taking charge and that's mm. what I want to do. I didn't take the job, um, didn't move. I was very you know, excited to stay with Jeffrey Roseman. I was there for three years. I started talking to the Chira family, was working on buying things in the meatpacking district. They wouldn't hire me at the time. They said at the time, you know, we're three brothers, plus our father. There's not enough action for yeah. the three of us, the four of us. Yeah. What are we going to do hiring you? So I was home one day in Marlborough, New Jersey with my parents. I was like, kind of like out on the whole Newmark retail thing by that point. I realized that I really wanted to go into the acquisition side mm -hmm. and trying to own some real estate. I thought that perhaps my dad's client that owned buildings in Soho would like back me if I found some good deals. Nothing's happening. I'm not being hired by any act, like any family or any office that's working on buying assets, any property in New York City. My mother says to me one afternoon in New Jersey, you know what, Jared? You're a fucking loser. My mom had never spoken to me like that in my entire life. She coddled me. She was like, you know, a Jewish mother, like very, yeah. very warm and caring and... Um, 
I was definitely a mama's boy. You can do no wrong. Totally, yeah. 100%. So she calls me, you know. She, she took uses, a different style that day. Oh, that day. It was it was wild, and I couldn't believe it. And she said, Jared, you know so many people. I had a BlackBerry at the time. That was like oh, yeah. the thing. I had a BlackBerry. I, I love the keyboard. So I, did I, I. I used to hook it onto my bell. Same. And I was like, I. I'm important. Like Same. I've made it. I got a BlackBerry. I put it on. It was the size of a small computer at this point. Right, right. And you started in brokerage, and you told me before yeah. it was the same year that I did, and yeah. it was tough making it was, money. It was really at the beginning really of brutal. your career yeah, in commercial make, real estate. I didn't yeah. close my first deal for 17 months, so that, wow. was, that was a challenge. And then you know, again, it wasn't like all of a sudden I took off. It's just every year a little bit more, and then GFC hit, and it was a little bit less. Yeah. But then after that, sure. it, it it obviously you know took off. Thank God. Yeah, for it took you. off. So you're, you're, you're kind of, you're so leaving. I'm at home. Yeah. My mom says this to me, you're says an effing loser. Politely, you're a loser. Yeah. Yeah. And then she says, Jared, you know, so many people, you have a Blackberry, go onto it, figure out who to reach out to. They're not going to come knocking at your door. No one cares to find Jared Epstein. You need to reach out to people mm -hmm. and tell them that you're, you know, you're looking to, to do something with yourself. Literally the first person I reached out to, I remembered, I'm like, what about that guy, Bobby Carey? He wanted me to be his apprentice a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in buying buildings and helping someone buy buildings. I wonder if he's still looking for someone. I send him an email. Within maybe 30 minutes, I get an email back. Ten minutes later, we're on a phone call, and he says, come to my office tomorrow. So I did. And he didn't really have a position at the time. Maybe he was playing it cool. I need to talk to my brothers. You know, this is a, the, would be my first employee. I was looking for a salary plus a guaranteed bonus, and I would get commissions. I thought at the time that I would be doing more retail brokerage mm -hmm. to make money. Um, that quickly changed. He hired me. I got there. I had no idea who this guy was except meeting him for 30 minutes at ICSE. Had no idea what he owned, what the family did before, what they do now. I just knew that they wanted to own more real estate. Within a week of being there, he brought over a list to me. I was cold calling. I didn't know any of these investment sales brokers. Sure. I only knew the retail side. Yeah. He brings me a list and he says, Jared, if anyone asks who we are, because Aurora didn't really have a brand name. It, had a, it was a company name, but no one knew who the hell it was. And some people knew of the Carey family, but it was really within the Syrian Jewish community, mm -hmm. not outside of it. And the Carey family was very respected, very wealthy. I had no clue. And to me, by the way, growing up, if your if your father made five six hundred thousand dollars and you got to go on like two trips a year and your dad had a BMW, you were like, wow, you were wealthy. Sure, like I that was way more than I grew up um, mm -hmm. having in in my family. So so you you were at you you joined Aurora two thousand seven right? Yeah. So he brings me the list. Yeah, the and list. on the list is large office buildings in Soho, retail like great retail all over the place a position in the World Trade Center, a position in Barney's, New York, L.A., Chicago. I'm like, who are these people? The first deal we're working on, he is, he's going to have to come up with like $50 million in equity. Him and his partner at the time were Alex Ajmi, his uncle. And I'm like, how is that even possible? That's like, a, how can big, someone have a, that type of money? It's a big equity slug. Yeah, just enormous. And it was real. I was astonished. I worked hard. I got him to the meatpacking district in 2009. I have to take a step back yeah. first. The first deal that we did together was the deal in Soho that he had asked me about in 2004. 
Okay. We acquired the retail Good. of the base of these buildings. Within, th They wanted to hire a broker to represent the retail. I said, guys, you should let me do this. I can do this. No, no, we need to hire this other firm. They were falling on their face, not getting anything done. I had made a cold call to a friend. I guess it wasn't a cold call. I called a friend in real estate, a retail broker. I said, what about Victoria's Secret? And the only reason I called him regarding Victoria's Secret was I lived in Soho. That's why in the beginning of our uh, time together at mm -hmm. Aurora, we really focused on Soho. I lived there. I was walking the streets. I knew the landlords. I knew the retailers. And I said to my wife, my girlfriend at the time, who became my fiance and my wife, I said, who belongs in this store here? If I could put the whole thing together, it'll have 60 feet of frontage, 10,000 square feet on the ground she the lower Victoria's level. She said Victoria's Secret. She said Victoria's Secret. Yeah. I said, why? She said, well, they have a store, a very small store on the corner of Prince Street, and inside of it is this brand Pink. Pink is like exploding. And she said, Victoria's Secret needs a much larger store, and Pink needs its own store. I call my friend Dan Alessandro, who at the time was working at CBRE. Within three to four days, I'm creating a rendering of what it could look like. There was an interest from them, so we created renderings. We had to show them how we're going to move the lobby to the back of the building and how that came up, the lobby. I'm with the heads of real estate, myself. Bobby wasn't there or Alex at the time. And the head of real estate for Victoria's Secret looks at me and he says, this really doesn't work. You know why? There's a lobby in between the two stores and it like disrupts the frontage. It doesn't, it's like not mm -hmm. cohesive. It doesn't make it look like it's one store. I knew the building from my father and his client. I had mm -hmm. been there so many times during my life. I knew there was a freight elevator in the back of the building on Mercer Street. I said to him, we're going to get rid of the lobby. We're going to move the elevator to Mercer Street and you're going to have the full 60 feet of frontage, this amazing 10,000 square foot space. He looked at me and he says, Kid, can you really get that done? This is at literally across the street from these two buildings pointing at them. I said, absolutely, I'm going to get it done. Go back to the office, tell Bobby. you said, I have no idea how I'm going to get this done. I figured, no, I figured yeah. I could get it done because I knew there was a freight elevator. I don't know how we're going to get rid of the elevator on Broadway. It turns out we were able to do it. We can put in a hanging elevator pit so it services the upper floors. There's going to be this new beautiful lobby on Mercer Street for your tenants. We're telling the landlord because we only had a master lease on the retail. Mm. We're going to do this surgically, like in a hospital setting basically, with uh, plastic sheathing, and none of your tenants are going to be disturbed. We're going to meet with every tenant and get them on board. Upstairs were residential tenants and commercial tenants. It ended up he did not want to do this. He did not want to allow us to do this. So we created this beautiful book, all the timing, like the scheduling, how each piece would happen, how this was going to be a benefit for the tenants and a benefit for, for him long term. We had a whole book created by TPG Architecture, renderings, the timeline, like I told you. And then finally, after meeting him three or four times, the owner of the property, he said, all right, let's do it. We were able to get a longer-term lease because of the work we were going to do. We signed the lease with Victoria's Secret at $5.3 million a year. That's a big number, even in today's... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And back then, it was just enormous, and it really put me on the map in terms of being... being a, deal, a deal maker. Yeah, being able to really accomplish something in real estate. And I had some relationships at the New York Post. We got this article yeah. in the New York Post. I saw my name in there, and I was like... 
wow, this is incredible. One of the things that I think drove me my whole life. I was going to ask what was, what was one of your drivers, but go ahead. Being accepted. Yeah. Being liked, being cared about. Um, so getting in the paper was really, was really something that drove that, me. Uh, in the Maslow's hierarchy needs, it's like, I think it's called affirmation. Sure. You know, it's like sure. the feeling that you're important and valuable and there's a place for you. There's, yeah. There's a reason you're here. You know, it's a, uh, it's uh, you, you. We can simplify it by saying, "Hey, we feeling like we matter." You know? People probably don't know this about me, but I was popular in middle school, and I had a girlfriend at the time. I wasn't too into her. She was very into me. I ended up breaking up with her. She got together with like a real tough guy, not like like you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a little Jewish guy at the time, mm -hmm. um, not into fighting. I played football, but I wasn't the great, greatest player. I, I was a little bit tough, but this kid was tough as nails, scary, and he didn't like me because his girlfriend still was into me. He would pick on me. His friends would pick on me. Finally, one day, he like wanted a fight. I ended up beating the shit out of him. He was bloody. His starter, Nick's jacket, all white, blood everywhere. I got suspended for five days. So did he. My mom didn't want me going back to the school. I ended up going to a private school the second half of my eighth grade. So the point of the story was that I was like picked on. And, yeah. and I, it really affected me emotionally. And my friends all like abandoned me. All my friends that I had in Marlboro, they forgot about me. Even my best friend that lived in my own development. And this was during the period of being picked on. You're like, hey, I need you guys to kind of get my back and step up. And they were like, oh. No one did. Yeah. I went to a different school. Everyone forgot about me. I was like basically going to this private school 30 minutes away from yeah, me. It's a, coming it's a home, not hanging a, out with feeling anyone. Feeling of a abandonment. It was terrible. Because they no longer saw value I had, you know, in being your friend, so to speak. Thank God I grew. I got a little bit bigger. That helps. I went right back to Marlboro Township High School. I played football. I got popular again. I had a fight or two. Kids were trying to pick on me right when I got back. I beat the hell out of another guy. And then I became friends with the tough guys. And it changed my whole trajectory at high school. But it really impacted me on wanting to feel welcomed and loved. I'm part of a tribe. Yeah, exactly. I got you. Uh, so I'm going to, I mean, you started Aurora in 2007. You talk about that first big deal with Victoria's Secret. So I'm going to fast forward to today. I mean, you go in a very short period of time, acquisitions and lease. I'm just reading the titles, acquisition, leasing director, VP, principal, and then president and principal. I mean, that's, that, those are big jumps to make. What, I didn't start Aurora. Aurora, the name yeah. of Aurora started with um, who became my eventual partner, Bobby Carey. But I think he would tell you, and most people in the industry would, um, would agree that I took it to another level. Not just because I found deals and I had relationships and we acquired real estate and I did a lot of great leasing on the properties that we acquired over the years, but I was very big into getting our name out there because we had no brand. Hmm. I created with a company our logo. I um, got us in the press like what, probably way too too many times. Bobby and his family were very shy, very like to themselves, didn't want to be well-known. They believe very much in like the evil eye. So no press. And I had to really battle with them on why press would be good for us. It would lead to additional opportunities. It would lead to other landlords and tenants knowing that we have a great reputation. We can actually get things done. 
and we had the capital to actually buy acquire buildings. Mm -hmm. So it really made a big impact on Aurora, which led to us making our first hire. I brought in a guy from Massey Knackle yeah. that I met on the corner of Prince and Washington, a young guy named Matthew Abreu. He was great. Like I met him. He was interested in working at Aurora. He reached out to me a week after this first tour. Brilliant kid, worked at uh, Massey Knackle, so I knew he had brokerage experience. I was going to say, and the Massey Knackle guys, they're fundamentally sound. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they train him well. I know train Bob's, well. Bob's become a good buddy of mine, Bob Knackle, Mine so, as well. He's yeah. one of the one of my mentors and one of the gentlemen, the brokers in real estate that I have the utmost respect for. He's really just an incredible person, incredibly hardworking, incredibly talented. So I really took a liking and... A liking and I had a respect level for this this young guy Matt because he was working with Bob Knackle. Yeah. Turned out he went to Wharton. So another pretty sharp guy. Real yeah. another big check in the I've, box. I've heard of that school. Yeah, but I we brought him on to really help me with acquisitions. It turned out that he he wasn't really that type of guy to handle acquisitions, but he was brilliant. I was growing tired of going to development meetings with contractors mm -hmm. and architects, and Bobby really was kind of tired of that too at the time. So we sent Matt to the Wolves, and w wouldn't you know, he became incredible at it. He was built for that. He was built for it, negotiating um, contracts, pushing subs and contractors to get their work done on time and efficiently, and it really helped us position into being developers. And what does Aurora's portfolio look like today? We have 18 properties in the Meatpacking District, approximately 750,000 square feet. We own maybe four, uh, maybe seven or eight buildings in Soho. We own some pieces in Midtown here in New York City, a bunch of properties in the boroughs, three development sites that were out of the ground with one that we sold already, sold condominiums in the West Village, another that we rented up in record time in the West Village, the 140 Jane development that I told you about, mm -hmm. another development site on Perry Street, another development site on Christopher and Weehawken Street, so a lot in the West Village. Yeah, and you've, you've, you've accomplished so much, especially at Aurora over the last 10, 15 years. Now, you did this simultaneous to getting married, starting a family? Yes, I did. My partner, Bobby Carey, kept pushing me. I had a girlfriend that I really loved. So it's time to grow up. Yeah, he's like, you have to get married. You know, it'll change your life. It'll really further ground you. So I did. It was one of the best decisions of my life. She loves me so much, um, really is like an anchor for me, keeps me focused and keeps you out of the nightclubs. Keeps me out of the nightclub. She's not a drinker, you know, no drugs, very um, against all of that, not interested in going out at night. We quickly got a dog, like yeah. uh, right before we got engaged. You got kids. I have two young boys: Jagger, who's seven and a half; Brant Axel, who is uh, six in two weeks, and that changed my life again as well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, look, kids will be getting married and kids. So was that was that a mentally a challenge, kind of pivoting from this, uh, you know, hardworking, obviously. Uh, professionally successful but like you know going out and having a good time to going home hanging with the dog hanging with the kids yeah so the first thing we, i lived in a fifth floor walk up in soho and would take the subway up to the new mark office this is when i started dating um, mindy my wife this was 2006 by 
2007, we ended up getting a dog, God rest her soul, named Madison, a puggle that I love very much. And that that started changing my life because we didn't. I didn't want to go out anymore. I wanted to come home and be with my girl and my dog. Um, then we moved to Chelsea. We had our first son and another dramatic change in my life, really making it all. It just became all about the kid, all about my boy, my, my son. And again, no interest in going out at night, no interest really in networking at night, a lot of lunches, you know, going to ICSE still, but no partying at night. Yeah. 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 That, that, that definitely happens with, especially with the kids, um, outside of your family, what are, what are, what are your biggest drivers or motivators today? I would say my biggest motivator, there's, there's three people probably in my life that have really impacted me and make me want to continue striving. And I would say they are, of course, Bobby Carey. He works as hard as anyone I know, is the second most brilliant person I've ever met in my life. The first would be my great-grandfather, who was um, lingual in seven different languages, wow. including Aramaic, like the language yeah. of God. He was a seventh-generation rabbi. God rest his soul. He died in 1999 at the age of 99. I was going to say, he had to have lived a long life. Brilliant guy. He would read the New York Times cover to cover for the science section and the politics section literally every day. Walked back and forth to his temple in Brooklyn every single day till he was like 95 years old. So he's, you know, he he's was... A, he, he's number one. He'd probably be number one. Bobby number number two, two would maybe be... I actually would say my father probably okay. because my father continues to work, continues to strive. He's 70, uh, I think he's 72 or 73 at this point. My father-in-law, who's 78, he's a garmento. I'm not sure if you know what that means. You yeah. would if you were a New Yorker. Yeah. But basically in the garment, in the district, garment district. Yeah, yeah, and buying and selling goods. Like that's what he does all day. He's on the phone 24-7. The, ult the ultimate trader. Yeah, he's the ultimate trader. He, he drives back and forth to the city from Weston, Connecticut, takes him 90 minutes each way, does it every single day of the week. Just a complete animal. <laughs> so discipline routine. So. And then Bobby. Bobby, you know, I once called Bobby when I was out in the Hamptons renting a house. And I said to him, this was like as the sun was setting. I probably had a drink or two in, in me. And I said, Bobby, how, like, what motivates you? How do you keep going so hard? You come from such a wealthy family. You don't have to work. Like, what is it? He goes, I just love it. And that's like the kind of, that's, that's, how, you, that's how it was born Jared, and how it was raised. I've, I've had the opportunity and privilege to interview, I mean, I don't know exactly, what is this 15, 16 extremely high achievers, 20? This is the 20th episode. There you go. Um, and uh, that, that actually, more than anything, has been the, like, because I ask a question and I've asked you and I'll continue to ask you at different stages of your life, like, what was your why? What was your motivation? And there's different, there's different layers to it. Obviously, early on, it's probably financial anxiety, like I got to make money. But the biggest thing, especially when people hit a place in their career where they probably don't need to work, you know, it's like, so why do you keep doing it? It's like, because I really love and enjoy, and we use the word passion, enthusiasm, but like, it's like that cliche saying, if you find something you love to do, you never work a day in your life. And, and it sounds like that's effectively what Bobby was telling you on that day when you're like, why do you keep going? You, you have more money than you ever need. It's like, because I love what I do. Yeah, really incredible. Is that is that true about you and what you're doing right now? I do love what I do. Um, like I told you previously, a lot of it 
leading up to this point was about recognition mm-hmm. and um, being respected and showing people that I could do something with my life. But I would say I'm much more of a homebody, a guy that loves nature. I'm stuck in the city because I work here. Yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that would like to commute. I knew that at a young age when I was taking the train from Jersey to Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. But if I had the type of capital that my partner Bobby has, I'm definitely a different type of person. I'd probably be retired, living in the Hamptons, and just enjoying my life. So could you say, just continuing to create wealth in addition to, uh, you know, you push back. I don't know if it ever goes away of, you know, the, the feeling, the desire to, be, to matter, the desire to, to have status or to feel valued. Uh, what, what, do, what do the next five, ten years look like for you and for Aurora? I'll tell you one thing, like I probably wouldn't retire even if I did have the cash because I also love the deals and I love the networking and I love the relationships. And when I'm anywhere, whether it's being on a Caribbean island or up in the mountains or out in the Hamptons, which is probably my favorite place in the world. Because you spend a lot of time out there. Yeah, I'm always intrigued by real estate. Like I see something and I see value and I see potential, usually with things that are not developed or just mismanaged or underdeveloped or misused. And it really just, I connect with the real estate. I connect with the bricks and I want to do something. I want to get involved. And why do you think you're like that? I, I think it's really, um, about my creativity. Um, real estate affords you the opportunity to in some way be an artisan. Mm Mm-hmm you're putting your touch on something yeah. and real estate is, is real. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, it's currency. A it's a it's not a stock. It's a hundred percent. It's a tangible asset. But yes. To your point, it's just a different type of canvas. And I love the canvas of real estate. I really love it. Yeah. And what, um, what do you like? Let me, I got a question for you. So if you had to go back, you know, looking back at your career, and again, you've, you've come a long way, but like, what would be a piece of advice you'd give your younger self? You know, when you were starting out, maybe just as a professional, or perhaps when you're starting Aurora again, you could, you could figure out what time period you're going to talk to yourself looking back, but what would be a piece of advice you'd give yourself back then that maybe you didn't know? Working even harder. <laughs> yeah. Longer, harder. So sacrifice. Yeah. Sacrifice for sure. We talk all the time about delayed gratification and gratification is a lot like wealth the longer you you allow it to it compounds and the longer you you wait to get it it actually the bigger it gets you know sure and, and um we, we've 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 interviewed some people who say yeah i wish i'd you know in my 20s especially when life's simpler uh you know specific to other commitments like family and things like that it's wish i did more so yeah that's, that, that's definitely that's, that's, great, advice. that's great advice and i'll tell you why we every episode zach we talk about this uh because so many of our listeners are up and coming professionals and I would say young and twenties and thirties and they're in the building phase, but especially this generation, there's been a concept introduced more so than probably you or I is like the work-life balance when they're younger. And um, I'm not saying you had balance, but you definitely were having a good time in your twenties. Now <laughs> the good news for you, you were, you were smart enough to at least tie that into your job. You yes. Know? Thank God. Um, but uh, what, what, what advice would you have for young professionals that are, inherently like internally they're driven to go out and conquer the world but they're also asking like well wait, wait a minute what about i think i'm supposed to have work-life balance i think i'm supposed to 
not just work. I'm supposed to evaluate my life in other ways than just my professional success. Looking back at your career, how would you, what would be your comment to that? I would say that not having such a work-life balance when you're younger, you alluded to the fact that you just have much more time and more energy when you're younger. And then you have much more responsibility when you have even a dog and then a family. Yeah. I would say dedicating as much time as you can to your, your career, your calling, um, not only by making, in, in our industry, making cold calls, networking. It's also about reading. You know, we have a great source in our industry called The Real Deal. Yeah. You know, you could be on it all day, I, every I day. Just, I just, I don't know when this episode will be released relative to Amir's. I just interviewed Amir yesterday. Great guy, brilliant. We tried awesome. to invest in the company in the depths of COVID. He wanted a huge valuation. I saw a lot of value in it. It's, it's a, a, an awesome publication. His story is phenomenal. You got to listen to the episode. I'll I will give you a sneak peek. I, I didn't know he was an like an actual refugee, I, you know, from Iran, but like Islamists take over in the late seventies, knock on his door and like try and find his father. They have to flee. I didn't know that. Yeah. Know, it, was, it was incredible, but and a huge success story and a huge success story. What I thought real deal should shift into, and maybe you'll have a chance of doing this potentially. I think as a as a young boy watching CNBC and still watching it every day, there should be something like that for real estate. There's yeah. so much that we could talk about, you know, 24-7, whether it's literally people being interviewed or people talking about the market, what's going on out there, information that people are unaware of. And also, there's plenty of documentaries that can be on real estate, like in the other hours. Absolutely. I, Amir had a great line, actually. Every single thing that happens ties back to real estate somehow, some way, no matter what it is. You're right. Politics, politi the, finance. The, the, the biggest donor to politicians is real estate or real sure. estate related. Obviously, finance or something as simple as even if it's someone who's not even in the real estate industry, it's like, well, do they own a home? Okay, let's look at that. He was he was talking about it from like a journalistic and investigation. But that's standpoint. that's exactly right. It's it doesn't have to be about commercial real yeah. estate. This real estate CNBC yeah. would be interesting to everyone. Well, yeah, and 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 up to somewhere between thirty five to forty, depending on values, up to thirty five to forty percent of all American household wealth is tied up in real estate in their home. Yeah. I think it was like 32 to 34% in their home. And then an additional three to four, they're invested in like random projects in real estate. Sure. So this is a great idea. We so will. think about, think about the audience. I mean, it's like almost limitless. And I, then, and then you, it's, it's, it's every city, every state, every country. So how could you not fill up uh, a no, 24 can, hour? Yeah. And, and, and even having commercial and probably a bigger portion would be residential Absolutely. segments because residential real estate is i mean they have reality tv shows this isn't are, reality tv show this no is, no i'm saying there, yeah there, no there's no an appetite i know for there's it. an appetite for it but this is actual reality yes that's is, a reality tv reality. show that's scripted all right, you invest i'll occasionally make a guest appearance amir will produce the whole thing we, we solved we solved it today yeah um all right last question for you actually i had two more last last kind of high level question for for young um entrepreneurs, young professionals, whether it's in, um, you know, in the industries you came up in, or, or it doesn't even have to be real estate. It could be anything. What advice would you have for young men and women today getting started in their careers who, who at least in this moment say, Hey, I want to, I want to make it to the top the way you have, or other people we've had on the show have, um, 
what what would be your kind of summarized advice for them? Work hard, read, network, find mentors. That's like a big thing as well. Find people that have made it and understand how do you how do you how find they did a it. mentor? I would, I've heard people yeah, say sure. like, don't go and say, hey, you know, Jared, will you be my mentor? But absolutely not. That's not how I would do it. I would try to build a relationship, maybe even with a junior guy on the team. And then somehow get the opportunity to meet the head guy and tell him like how much you respect him or her. And that relationship can evolve into a meaningful relationship where they don't even know they're mentoring you. Yeah. It's more of a friendship. And I agree. It's identifying those people within your industry that for whatever your reason, most of the time it's pretty easy to understand why, but why you would want them to, even if they don't know it, mentor you, that's okay if that's your ambition. And then really you got to stay close to the hoop, right? And and you really actually have to work hard to to getting that mentorship because you can't just show up, say, hey, will you mentor me? No, okay, I'm going to go. Yeah, that never works. Yeah, the mentorship almost has to be informal to where they don't even know, but they just... Exactly. And part of, in my opinion, and tell me if you agree, part of getting someone to mentor you, whether they know it or not, is when they give you advice or give you mentorship that you actually go execute on it. You actually go apply it. Right. There's there's no value in... The second you start giving someone younger is like, what would you do here? And you tell them, and then, you know, whether it's five days or five weeks later, you see that they didn't really apply it, then you're like, what am I doing here? I was going to say application. That's that's like the key to it. And last thing, Jared, are there any uh, specific, what I call resources, like practical courses, books, um programs that you would recommend for for anyone in that's a another setting. that's another thing that i wanted to touch on in terms of what i would tell young people it's education continue to get educated there's the new york in terms of new york city there's the nyu shack program there's the columbia masters program there's after work things that you so like can a do formal continuing to receive formal education for sure and go to um listen to podcasts yeah uh, i said before read the real deal go to Events where people are talking, panels, BizNow does them often, Rebney, things like that. Yeah, I think I'm going to speak at Rebney's January conference, I want to say. Oh, that's great. Where is it? Here in New York. Well, I'm going to reach out to them and try and get on the bill also. Yeah, for sure. That'd be great. Uh, I'd obviously heard about them, but they said, hey, we see what you're doing in New York. We'd like to have you come be. That's great. Either a speaker keynote. and You've done a lot in a very, you know, I'm, I'm so thrilled that we got the opportunity to meet each other today um again i'm i'm wowed i'm floored with what you've already accomplished here in new york and around the country um the sky's the limit for you and i believe in the future hopefully we'll be doing deals together not just on the brokerage side like i'd love to see you you know you you have plenty of guys making the calls pounding the pavement, creating relationships, you're going to find deals that you're not going to want to market. You're actually going to want to try and take down. And I'd love to continue yeah, this if, relationship. Yeah, well, we'll go out and we'll ask these guys if they got any off-market leads. I know I'll, I'll be an LP because I don't know the New York market. The no, way I, do, wouldn't, but, I wouldn't uh, let you be an LP. But uh, yeah, this will, be, this will be fun. And guess what? If I ever need to like look and like I like I know people in New York and get into a nightclub, I know who I'm calling. Right? <laughs> That's for sure. I still have some contacts. Excellent. And they own like, the clubs now. I can't thank you for making the way to our, over to our mid midtown office here in, in New York, Jared. It's been a it's been a privilege. I very much enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to really kicking off this relationship. And um, again, just thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate you. Let's get down. Let's-
let's get down to business Give you one more night, one more night to get this We've had a million, million nights just like this So let's get down, let's get down to business